Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Ask yourself whether you're consuming far too much animal food. And uh, if that's the case, please cut down on it because that I tell people it's good for your health and for the health of the planet. So we should really look at what we are eating and how much we are eating see whether we can moderate our consumption of uh, animal protein. A Nobel Prize winning climate change expert connects the foods we choose with the conditions of our planet. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. While understanding the Earth's climate or even determining tomorrow's meteorological forecast can be complex, there's no question that recent years have witnessed an increase in extreme weather conditions, from heat to floods to storms in the United States and many regions of the world. And NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which operates the National Weather Service, has been tracking the trends. Thomas Carl directs NOAA's National Climatic Data Center, which maintains the world's largest archive on climate. Higher emissions of heat-trapping pollutants result in more temperature rise and many more days above 100 degrees. For example, an area in Texas that now sees 10 to 20 days per year over 100 degrees, by the end of this century, under a high-emission scenario, will experience more than 100 days over 100 degrees. Our health will be directly affected by more very hot days and heat waves. Extreme heat waves, which are currently rare, will become much more common in the future. And at the same time, the U.S. population is aging, and older people are more vulnerable to extreme heat. Increases in heat-related illnesses and death are projected in cities across the nation, especially under high emission scenarios. For an example, an analysis of heat waves in Chicago finds about a tenfold increase in heat-related deaths by late this century under high-emission scenario. Climate scientists say these trends can be slowed if our society takes steps to generate fewer greenhouse gases that trap heat in the atmosphere. But efforts to curb these emissions are significantly hobbled by political and economic interests. Meanwhile, weather patterns continue to shift. Thomas Carl. One of the most important changes we've seen across the nation is that more rain is coming in the form of heavy downpours. There are fewer light rains and more heavy rains in every region. The largest percent increases in the heaviest downpours have taken place in the Midwest and the Northeast. So it's no surprise that we've seen some record flooding there. And we understand why warming leads to these 
heavy and extreme precipitation events. Higher temperatures mean more evaporation, putting more water vapor in the air, and then when a storm comes along, all this additional water vapor is dumped in that storm in the form of a heavy downpour. More and more people are paying attention to the planetary perils posed by climate change. And they're asking about the role that we as individuals play in generating the greenhouse gases affecting our weather. A study by the European Union shows that about three-fourths of a person's environmental footprint is attributable to the fuel consumed in transportation, food, and housing. In Sweden, labeling on many food products and restaurant menus now displays the climate impact. And one of the world's largest contributors of these heat-trapping gases is from energy-intensive livestock operations, which produce meat and dairy products. If you look at the total emissions uh, of greenhouse gases from the entire livestock industry, it accounts for about 18%, according to the FAO's the Food and Agriculture Organization's own estimates. And that's a significant share of total emissions of greenhouse gases. And that would be worldwide? That's worldwide. And frankly, there are indications that this might be an underestimate. At any rate, even if you take the 18% figure, that represents a bit more than the total emissions from the transport sector. Dr. Rajendra Pachari chairs the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is widely recognized as the world's leading scientific body on global warming. Together with former Vice President Al Gore, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Partly based in India, Dr. Pajari also directs the Yale Climate and Energy Institute in New Haven, Connecticut, where I visited him. He thinks we often overlook the environmental effects of the foods we consume. If you look at the entire meat cycle, I mean, just uh, let's focus on the, the whole set of activities involved in production of meat. Uh, often you have to clear forest area to create pasture land. And that means these sinks of carbon dioxide, uh, which are in the form of forests, are being destroyed. Human beings depend on forests. Trees naturally emit oxygen in their growth cycle. And trees play another crucial role, one especially important at a time of concern about climate change. They absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because they need it for photosynthesis. This forms what's called a carbon sink. Since carbon dioxide is the leading greenhouse gas, trees help to reduce the global warming burden. So massive deforestation, a result of intensive livestock production, is very worrisome to climate scientists. And that's just part of the environmental footprint associated with raising billions of animals for meat. You also feed them with grains that are produced elsewhere um, at the cost of emissions resulting from use of fertilizer, from pesticides and so on, and the transportation involved in getting those uh, grains as feed material for livestock. And then when these animals are killed, they have to be refrigerated. And often, uh, given the global trade in meat, you have to move large quantities of meat long distances, and that again is under refrigeration. Then they go into a warehouse where 
you keep it under refrigeration, then, you know, retail outlets, you have meat which is refrigerated. People buy the meat and take it home. And, you know, uh, maybe 50 years ago, refrigerators had very small freezers because you barely made ice and stored ice in them. Today, we all have large uh, freezer cabinets, and that's basically to store meat. So there's energy consumption and therefore emissions taking place as a result. Explain the uh, energy consumption pattern associated with refrigeration. Why does that compound global warming? Well, because uh, most of the electricity produced uh, in several parts of the world comes from fossil fuels and uh, you're burning those fossil fuels to produce electricity. Oil, coal, Oil, natural coal, gas. natural gas. And um, all of that results in emissions of carbon dioxide. So just the sheer use of high amounts of electricity in refrigeration itself is a substantial driver of global warming. It is, absolutely. And, you know, if you take 18, 18 or 20 percent of the total emissions of uh, greenhouse gases coming from the livestock cycle. Uh, and that's from growing the grains that would feed the livestock all the way to refrigerating the meat in your home freezer, absolutely. that whole cycle. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, uh, as I mentioned, this could very well turn out to be an underestimate. Uh, it could be much higher. So if you look at this, you know, let's say there's somebody who eats meat five or six times a week. All you need to do is to reduce your consumption maybe by 20-25%. Uh, and that overall will result in a drop in emissions from this entire sector. Now, of course, there will be an adjustment involved. There's a huge industry which has grown uh, around the entire meat cycle. Uh, they would have to move to something else. There would be a transition that would take place. But I think the sooner we start on that transition, the better it would be. And uh, the good thing about reducing meat consumption is that it's also good for your health. I mean, there's now so much overwhelming medical evidence that lower meat consumption and greater use of plant food, uh, plant-based foods. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains. Le leafy material and so on is so much better for human health than consuming large quantities of meat. Uh, I think there are parts of the world that uh, in terms of meat consumption have clearly gone beyond the range where it's really healthy for human beings to consume those quantities. We're talking with Dr. Rajendra Pachari, chair of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and director of the Yale Climate and Energy Institute. Former Vice President Al Gore, he shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize for their work to protect the environment. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Our Food Footprint, please visit humanmedia.org. Scientists concerned about the environmental footprint of massive livestock production point to demographic patterns. In wealthier nations like the U.S. and in Europe, where many people can afford to eat relatively expensive animal products, the intake of meat and dairy is already high. 
but in poorer nations like China, Brazil, and India, where the average person traditionally couldn't afford to eat much meat, the picture is now shifting, a trend that worries Rajendra Pachari. Even in developing countries where incomes are growing, they are moving to uh, huge increases in consumption of meat. China is one example. I first visited that country in 1981 when incomes were substantially lower. And the only meat people generally ate was uh, pork. And they would keep pigs in their home. And uh, they were used for eating meat, uh, small quantities. But today, the entire poultry industry, the consumption of beef in China has really gone uh, skyrocketing because incomes are much higher and people are moving to greater consumption of animal protein. You mentioned transitions that may be required of the agriculture industry in order to accommodate measures to combat climate change. What kinds of practical changes can be adopted by agriculture to uh, effectively change this? We are now at a situation where the balance between production of food of all kinds, food grains in particular, uh, and the demand for it are reaching a point of great concern. Uh, the issue of food security is going to be critical for human society. Just because we live in a world whose population continues to skyrocket. Absolutely. There are, uh, and there are large areas where, unfortunately, there's still a huge amount of malnutrition and uh, hunger all around. And I think if we were to bring about a move uh, towards a world where people are better fed and get adequate nutrition, of course, we'll have to devise policies whereby those countries which are not self-sufficient in food production and don't have the means to import large quantities are provided some degree of assistance. Uh, we, we are not going to see a solution to this problem. But I think we are living in an age where enlightenment and our concern for the welfare of all societies should help us devise policy packages by which we can take care of the nutritional needs of the entire population of this planet. Anwal is not suggesting a transition overnight, but I think we have to devise policies by which we make it possible and attractive for those who are in, let's say, the meat industry uh, at this point of time, start moving to alternatives which also solve some of these growing global problems that we have. We know, of course, that there's a huge financial interest associated with agriculture, especially mega agriculture. Are there strategies possible that will allow this industry to make climate-friendly uh, transitions without um, suffering in a way that the changes are resisted? Yes, you know, in the IPCC fourth assessment report, we clearly brought out the fact that you need a price on carbon. Now, if there was a price on carbon, then clearly the cost of transportation, the cost of everything else associated with, let's say, refrigeration and so on, uh, would become higher. And therefore, people will move to uh, solutions that uh, reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular, but other greenhouse gases as well. And I think you also need to create awareness among the people because basically I think dietary choices are very voluntary choices 
the consumer is uh, is really the driver of change. So more, more of a carrot than a stick. I think so. In the end, uh, that's what would work much more than any kind of stick. And a carrot, perhaps literally in this case, if people are increasing their consumption of vegetables. What perhaps uh, agriculture could do is to uh, firstly uh, think in terms of restoring some of those forests which have been depleted only to convert to pasture land. I think there have to be policies and this is where governments must come in to promote uh, forestry and uh, cover uh, large areas with uh, trees. I think if that was to happen and if that was to become attractive in financial terms, then I think uh, you take an area like the Amazon where a substantial part of the forests that have been cleared uh, have really been converted to pasture land. We need to reverse that. So pasture land so that the livestock can graze so that people can have their meat. So if meat consumption reduces, the need for that pasture land is diminished. Absolutely. If one continues with the example of Brazil, in the 1980s, they had a terrible uh, foreign exchange crisis. Um, Brazil was heavily indebted to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and uh, several other countries and banks that had loaned them large sums of money. In order to deal with that problem, they decided to export large quantities of beef. And how did they do that? Well, they cleared a lot of the Amazon forests, converted it to fast pasture land, and um, raised cattle, which provided all the beef that they were exporting, and they earned foreign exchange. Now, all of that really needs to be reversed because the climatic conditions, the soil conditions in that area are such that you can revive much of uh, the, the rich forest cover that existed in the Amazon at that point of time. But we need a package of policies, and this is where I think governments have an extremely important role to play, but governments will only act at the behest, at the, at the requirement of uh, the public, and I think the public has to get involved. So your number one recommendation is to uh, restore forest land that has been recently converted to pasture land? Absolutely. When you cut them down, they become furniture, they become buildings, they become other things, and they are not able to use that carbon dioxide, which is required when they are alive. So they stop absorbing it, and therefore it's able to do more damage in the Absolutely. sense of cooking our planet. Absolutely. Quite right. And that's what's happening. And I think over the past few decades, we have really destroyed forest cover in so many parts of the world that we need to start reversing that. And that also has other ecological implications, because forests really are one of the biggest bounties of nature. And if we destroy them, it has all kinds of other implications, even on local climate and water availability and so on. So, you know, I think we need to move in that direction uh, vigorously as soon as possible. How concerned are you with the heavy use of farmland just to grow the grains that the animals uh, feed, feed upon? Well, that's all part of the same problem. And, you know, a lot of the food grains which should really be consumed by human beings are being consumed by animals. And that's a very inefficient 
conversion of uh, food. Because it takes a lot more of those grains to feed a big cow than it would a human being. Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, overall an extremely inefficient cycle because if that food grain was to be consumed directly by human beings, you would be able to feed many more people than by first producing meat and then that meat being consumed by human beings. It's, uh, it's a very inefficient uh, cycle of conversion. And, and a serious concern in a world where about a billion people suffer from uh, malnourishment. Absolutely. And you know that number is going to grow because the way we are going, obviously with population growth, and that's taking place in some of the poorest regions in the world, uh, you're going to have large numbers of people totally malnourished and hungry. And I don't think that's good even for the stability of human society and the security of human society. Poverty is a very uh, basic breeding ground for, uh, uh, for instability and for actions that go against any form of good governance. So you, you could have spots across the world where you have relative anarchy and uh, those could become the breeding grounds of terrorism, of all kinds of other illegal activities. And it's not going to leave any part of the world untouched or isolated. So we have to be aware of that. And nothing makes people more restless than hunger. Absolutely. I mean, hunger is such a basic problem that uh, people would be desperate and willing to do anything just to be able to feed themselves. And shortages are projected to include not only food, but also water. Massive amounts of water are needed for irrigation of crops to raise the feedstock for billions of animals, water that instead could be drunk by thirsty people. It's a need that may grow dramatically in coming years as the world's population increases by an estimated one billion in less than two decades. Food insecurity is already in the news. A street protest against rising food costs recently turned violent in the Haitian capital Port-au-Prince as well as in cities in other developing countries. World Bank President Robert Zolik says food inflation disproportionately affects the world's poor. In Bangladesh, a two kilogram bag of rice, like this, now consumes about half of the daily income of a poor family. A drought in Australia and crop diseases in other parts of the world have contributed to the diminishing food supply. There also is increased demand in other countries. A risk we run in exploring massive global challenges like food shortages and climate change is that the information can begin to seem overwhelming. But these huge trends really consist of lots of individual choices made one person at a time at places like grocery stores. UN Climate Panel Chair Rajendra Pachari. What are some concrete dietary steps an individual concerned about climate change can take? Well, I think uh, we should, uh, as far as possible, move towards uh, organic food. Uh, I do realize that's not, not something that you can do overnight. Explain the connection between organic food and reducing global warming. 
You see, there's um, uh, in several parts of the world an excessive use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides and so on. Now, in the production of those uh, inputs, uh, you do create emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and other gases. Pesticides are very high in their emissions of global warming gas. They are. Besides, you see, wherever you have excessive use of pesticides, often that finds its way into the water stream because it uh, goes into the groundwater resources and these are pumped out and used for a variety of purposes. A lot of runoff. Exactly. And all of that can be very harmful. So uh, in addition to the implications for climate change, uh, you also have implications for human health because a lot of these chemicals and pesticides get into the water stream and they are consumed by human beings often by children who are really badly affected by all this. And so uh, organic foods as much as possible, uh, other specific practical recommendations for individuals who want to make a difference? Well, like I said, eat much more vegetarian food. That's much healthier for you. It also cuts down on emissions. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not saying people should become vegetarians. All I'm saying is eat less food because there are parts of the world where people are consuming meat which is really not uh, good for them with the quantities that are being consumed. So let me understand the spectrum here. Would the ideal diet be a meatless diet uh, in terms of global warming impact? Yes, and you know, often I'm asked the question, uh, um, what would you do about um, uh, adequate intake of proteins? Uh, can vegetables supply that? Well. Uh, I was given this answer by uh, an interesting and very enlightened person who said, why don't you uh, ask two consultants who would be able to give you an answer? I said, who? He said, well, ask an elephant and ask a horse. They don't eat any meat and you can't get stronger animals than that. Uh, I, I think you can, uh, you can certainly take care of all your nutritional requirements if you had a balanced vegetarian diet, no question about it. And for people who are not willing to take so strong of a measure in changing their dietary practices, what's a uh, sort of a easier, more accessible step somebody can take? Well, I would never advocate anything as radical as becoming vegetarians overnight. I mean, if you don't want to, that's fine. But you certainly should ask yourself whether you're consuming far too much animal food. And uh, if that's the case, please cut down on it because that, I tell people, it's good for your health and for the health of the planet. So we should really look at what we are eating and how much we are eating. And I know there's some societies where meat consumption is huge. It's very, very large. It's not good even from the medical point of view. So therefore, let's ask, yourself, ask ourselves and see whether we can moderate our consumption of uh, animal protein. What's a uh, good starting point for an individual who wants to be responsive to this, but who may not be able to handle you know, an overnight revolution in their diet? I addressed a large group of people in the city of Ghent in Belgium, uh, and I talked about this very subject, and I found a massive response that whole city uh, then started a movement, and now they have one day a week, which is a meatless day. Uh, meat will not be served in restaurants. People don't eat, the, eat meat at home. And I think that's a good step forward. 
now Sir Paul McCartney, who's a good friend of mine, and I have been trying to suggest this uh, in other countries of Europe as well. If you cut down, say, from five days a week of meat consumption on an average to four days, uh, then you're bringing about a 20% reduction, and that's uh, significant globally. Dr. Rajendra Pachari, chair of the UN's Nobel Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, speaking with me in New Haven, Connecticut, where he directs the Yale Climate and Energy Institute. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Our Food Footprint, is Humankind Program number 168. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.